Well, hello everyone. Thanks again for joining us here at the History 296 podcast. Uh, this is week three. And this week, uh, our course is taking a very substantial and important turn into the last several decades of the Joseon dynasty, um, which also, of course, coincides with the emergence of Japanese dominance and eventual rule and ultimately annexation of the Korean Peninsula that would spawn the very traumatic and, suffice to say, difficult 35-year period that would be the Japanese colonial governance of Korea. Uh, Last week, we spent some time delving into certain features and aspects of the Joseon dynasty and certain trends that began to emerge in the middle to late 19th century that would culminate in the fraying and eventual collapse of the Joseon dynasty. And and what we're going to be doing this week is trying to look at this period. uh, And and something we've been talking about um, going back to the beginning of the course um, is this idea of modernity and the speed at which um, social and and political and economic changes uh, occur during this period. And I think there's no real better representation of that than the period of from 1876 to 1905, right? With 1876 marking the signing of the Treaty of Ganghua, um, which we've mentioned before in the class, uh, the, the treaty um, between the Joseon dynasty and um, the Meiji government in Japan, you know, ostensibly centered around opening Korean ports to Japanese trade and, and some other stipulations we'll talk about this week in the course, and ending with the Treaty of Usa signing in 1905, which effectively put Korea under Japanese control. And um, for the show today, what's important to point out is the best way to think about this is that this is a really short period, right? This is about 29, not even 30 years. And if you could imagine going back to the royal court in the Joseon dynasty in 1876 um, and talking to them, I mean, certainly at that time, they knew things were def- were changing. They knew the environment they were in was rapidly shifting. They understood this created a lot of threats to the Joseon dynasty, and it created a lot of difficulties that were going to need it to be addressed. But in no way would even the most pessimistic outlook could not have imagined or or even held it in their mind that 30 years later, the Joseon dynasty that had existed and persisted for nearly five centuries um, would basically come to an end and a fairly unceremonious end, right? There was no war. Um, there was no major battle. Um, and that's something we'll, we'll talk about in the, in the weeks to come. But that bears mentioning here that that, that that was just something that couldn't be under wouldn't be understood um, as as a remotely possible and again that's even from people who had the most pessimistic outlook of the situation the Joseon dynasty was in and what we're going to really try to focus on this week is really you know look at that 30-year period um, both in terms of internally what was going on in Korea but also how that interacted with the external environment and think about where Korea fit into the broader late 19th and early 20th century global environment. And that was a period of rapid colonization and and a struggle for colonial rule and colonial competition. And in that world, almost every inch of habitable land in the world came to be seen in a zero-sum way, right? And so this is something that Korea 
um, slowly began to encounter. We talked about its early encounters with France and the United States, and these are much more peripheral, low-level encounters. But as we get into the later part of the 19th century, Korea is going to find itself pulled into this scramble for territory and colonial competition. And that would be a competition involving European powers, but also a competition that the Japanese, um, ultimately Japanese empire, but at the time Meiji government would be rapidly trying to join and would lead to the creation and expansion of the Japanese empire in East and Southeast Asia. And so one of the things that I think is fascinating about this period and something we'll, we'll dig into a little bit more in the class this week is that this was a time when Korea was in some ways compelled to transform itself into what we call now a modern nation state. We've talked a lot about the relationship with Ming and then ultimately Qing China and this kind of vassal relationship that also allowed Korea and the Joseon dynasty to function with pretty much total autonomy in its day-to-day -day governance. That the Treaty of Ganghua uh, notably, one of the first provisions is to state that Korea is a sovereign and independent country. And that was not some act of friendship by the Japanese government or, or, or something along those lines or something that's trying to bolster Korea's independence per se, but it was to identify Korea as a piece on this global chessboard, this global colonial struggle for territory. To the extent that Korea, though the the extent that Korea could be decoupled and separated from its long-standing relationship with Qing China, made it a target for colonial expansion and control. And certainly, Japan was not the only player in this game. China was also, at the time, interestingly, um, after decades or centuries of basically allowing the Joseon dynasty to govern itself as it saw fit, began to try to interfere directly in Joseon politics. So this is, you know, and, and ditto that for Russia and to a lesser extent, Britain and the United States. So all at once, Korea is supposedly moving towards becoming what we now think of as a sovereign, autonomous nation state was the period that probably represented some of the greatest direct influence in Joseon affairs for centuries. So that's an interesting, and I think that kind of paradox um, or that kind of um, contradiction is something that tells us a good amount about the politics of this time, but also about the nature of the world today and what it means to be a sovereign state and, and, and so forth. And we can maybe expand on that a little bit in the class. But in terms of the specific social, political, and economic environment of the late 19th century, Korea was folded into this notion and we saw it spread across Africa and Southeast Asia and South Asia. Um, coming into East Asia, that Korea began, you know, to the extent that it was seen as an independent or separate territory, began to be seen as a piece on the board. And that this zero-sum logic was, if I don't control this territory, someone else will. And this sort of environment made countries work either to control territory they saw as vulnerable to um, domination or seek to manipulate the internal politics of that society to prevent the control of another, right? And so, and, and, it, and again, this is a part of a zero-sum logic. Korea or other 
territories would either be captured and held by us, and if, if, if we didn't do it, someone else would, right? And their gain would be our loss. And this was a kind of logic driving this. And there's a, a several other ideological features that we want to dig into this week in the class, but we'll, we'll leave it there for now. And so as a last kind of thought to, to again, these, these podcasts hopefully kind of set us up for thinking about some big themes um, as we go into the week. And I think as a final thought, it's important to think about how, and this is keeping with the theme we've introduced over the, over the last several weeks, how this represented a fundamental change in the kinds of diplomatic and political relations that were necessary to operate in, right? That the Joseon dynasty had operated, again, within a very specific context. And this new context of nation states making treaties and negotiating with each other and managing a complex set of you know, multi-sided diplomatic relations was something that, again, no pun intended, was, was totally foreign to the Joseon dynasty, right? And, and it was, so it was not, again, a, a lack of intellectual capacity, but it was in some ways a lack of experience or a lack of ability to understand the rules of the game they were entering. And we're going to see the nature of that in some of the early treaties they did sign um, with Japan or with the United States, right? That there was a fundamental misunderstanding as to what those treaties meant. And in some sense, it's understandable because this system was operating by a set of rules and a set of logics that were just fundamentally incompatible or or indecipherable to the Joseon elite who had come to understand their place in the world and their relation with the world around them based upon a set of premises that were rapidly disappearing. And so I think that the result of that, as we kind of talked about in class last week, are going to really manifest themselves in the Joseon dynasty and, and to the extent Korea's first kind of foray into what we call quote unquote modern international politics. And as we've been talking about um, also over the last several weeks, these external changes are going to also manifest themselves in dramatic internal developments. And we're going to see increasing divisions amongst elites, attempted coups, dramatic reforms. We're going to talk a little bit more about the Donghak Rebellion and some of the specifics of that. And these things would ultimately be connected with and integrated with massive international events, such as the First Sino-Japanese War, which would have profound effects on Korea's relationship, not only with Japan, but with other competing colonial powers more broadly. And so, you know, this interplay of internal and external affairs comes really to a head with the mixing of the Donghak Rebellion, China's intervention in the Donghak Rebellion, and the diplomatic and ultimately military dispute that that sets off between Japan and China, culminating in Japan's victory in the First Sino-Japanese War that would have huge effects on domestic politics within Korea moving forward. And we're going to dig into a lot more of these details in the class this week, but I think that is something to, to keep in mind um, as you prepare for class this week, um, make comments on the comment sheet. Uh, again, as I've noted before, you can certainly draw from the readings, um, both the required or advanced readings, and you can use the discussions we've had here in the podcast as um, sources to reflect upon, comment on, and importantly, also ask some questions if you have questions you wanted to see addressed in the class. Okay, well, thank you so much for listening. Uh, I look forward to seeing everyone in class next week and have a nice weekend.